I remember when I was a boy in South Africa, our family one time took a tour of a gold mine. And it was an active working gold mine. And not only did we get to see a bar of gold being poured, which was very cool. They didn't let me take it with me. (laughs) Never understood that part. I thought that was part of the tour. But the thing that really uh, unsettled me in that tour was we got to walk into this cage. You might call it an elevator. It was really a cage uh, suspended by tremendously long cables. And they lowered us down into the gold mine, down into the heart of the earth. And I mean, it was a long, long way. And we reached a point in the descent where I noticed suddenly that the light from the shaft had disappeared up above us, and we were in total darkness. And when we finally reached the bottom and they opened the doors on this cage and let us out, and we did a bit of a tour, there was one point in there where the tour guide uh, warned us ahead of time, but he turned out all the lights that were down there in that tunnel. This is a different kind of darkness when you're down below the earth, and there is no natural light at all coming in from anywhere. You think it's dark if you walk into your closet at home and shut the door? This is a whole different level of darkness, and I was very uncomfortable with that. I still remember that feeling in the pit of my stomach that uh, I just wanted to get out. I wanted to see light again. And as we were coming back up in that rattly old crate, coming up from that hole under the ground, uh, we once again saw light begin to break through from the top of the tunnel, and that was a tremendous relief. You know, sometimes when life is at its worst, when it seems that there are nothing but dark clouds around, when, when it feels like all the light has been extinguished in your life, and everything around you is just darkness, you can be tempted to wonder in those times if God has abandoned you. And perhaps worse, if he has completely forgotten who you are. And after seeing for the past two Sundays all the darkness and sin and evil taking place in the book of Judges, it's, it's hard to believe that God would even want to be present to do anything good at all during that time in history. And that's why I'm so thankful for the little book of Ruth. The book of Ruth comes right after the book of Judges in your Bible, but it's very important for us to understand that the events in the book of Ruth take place during the time of the Judges that we've studied for these past two Sundays. The book of Ruth takes place during one of the darkest times in history, and yet this little book shines with hope and promise. It's as though in this landscape of utter darkness of judges. You you look and you strain and you look a little closer and you see in that darkness a tiny sparkle of light. And as you move closer and closer to it, that light begins to grow brighter and it puts hope in your heart because you know that God has not abandoned his people in their worst moments of sin and rebellion. God is still there. He is still at work. Perhaps for some of you, you're at a place in your life this very morning 
where you feel that darkness has been closing in, you, you, you feel like you haven't seen light in a very long time. And your heart is beginning to lose hope. You're beginning to wonder where God is in all of this. I hope that our little study this morning of this book of Ruth will be a great encouragement to you. So let's turn to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and I want to read just the first um, four or five verses here to kind of set the scene for us. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges ruled, so there's our setting, there's our time frame. There was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live for a while in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, not Oprah. I'm dyslexic sometimes, but that definitely does not say Oprah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, if we've been paying attention the last couple of weeks especially, and even months before that in our Through the Bible study, we should pick up from just these first few verses that there's something very wrong going on here. When we're talking about Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, we're talking about God's people. We're talking about Israelites from the town of Bethlehem. And we've learned from our previous studies that God has forbidden his people to live among the pagan nations. He's also forbidden them from marrying unbelievers. And so, even though Elimelech and his family are facing a famine, they're facing incredibly hard times, he is violating God's commands by A, going to live in a pagan nation, and B, allowing his sons to marry pagan women. Now, you can look at the history of the nation of Moab. It's a horrific, horrific history, <clears throat> the beginnings of which go all the way back to uh, Genesis 18 and 19, after the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, the nation of Moab is born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. The Moabites have been enemies of God's people for generations. And Elimelech's decision to move there in direct opposition to God's clear command not to do so opens up his family to a heartbreaking string of events. Elimelech dies in that foreign land. We're given no details. And then sometime later, both his sons die there as well. And it's, it's hard for us to try and relate to the level of grief that Naomi is suffering at this point. She's had to bury her husband. She's had to bury both her sons. And she's away from her family, her people, her nation. She's in a foreign land, and she's had to endure this devastating series of events. 
But sometime after this loss, verse 6 tells us that Naomi hears news that God has once again visited his people back in Bethlehem and that he has provided food for them once again, that the famine is now uh, beginning to come to an end and the people have food once again. So she packs her things to go back home and as she sets out, we're told that both her daughters-in-law start to go with her. But at some point along the road, Naomi stops, and verse 8 and following tell us that she turned to her daughters-in-law, and she, she said to them, it would be better for you if you stayed in Moab. She said, just turn around and go home to your mother's household and do the best you can there. I have no more sons I can give to you for husbands. There's really nothing I can offer to you. It would be better if you just go back home. And we see this stirring scene take place on the side of the dusty road that leads to Bethlehem as these three women stand there with this choice of a lifetime. And they begin weeping over this decision of whether to go or whether to stay. And verse 14 says they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, this is Naomi speaking to Ruth. Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth, and this is perhaps the best-known verse in the book, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Now those words have become sort of nicely packaged in our culture, and we use them at weddings a lot, and rightly so. I think they're beautiful words, but here's what we need to understand that's taking place in this moment. These are far more than just casual words that... Ruth is speaking to Naomi. We must remember that Ruth is a pagan woman from a pagan nation. She has grown up in a culture that served other gods. Go back to verse 15, and, and maybe you picked that up there. Naomi said, look, your sister has gone back to her people and to her gods. So why did Ruth refuse to go back to her old gods? Because listen, this is important. These are more than just words. What we're seeing here is a reflection that a change has taken place in Ruth's heart. She has come to understand the covenant language of God because that's exactly the language she's using here. Throughout scriptures, I've pointed this out several times already in our studies, throughout the scriptures, God says again and again to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Ruth is using that same language here in a way that indicates that she has left her old gods and she has put her faith in the God of heaven. And folks, what we see here is a snapshot of the choice that every man and woman has to make before they die. Ruth and Orpah are 
Yes, standing on the side of the road, but it's much more than that. They are literally standing at the crossroads of life. Will they go back to their old ways and their old gods? Or will they abandon their old ways and their old gods, leave them behind in order to follow the one true God? And we see the decisions they make. Orpah decides to turn back and go back to her old gods, Ruth, chose to follow God. And in the remaining verses of chapter 1, we see that Ruth and Naomi make the journey back to Bethlehem. And verse 22 tells us that they've left the country of Moab now. They arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And there are some verses in between there. I don't have time to dig into all of this today. You can pursue it on your own if you like. But we see the heartache that Naomi is carrying as she arrives back in Bethlehem. And the people that she knows comes out and they see Naomi after all these years. And they look at her and they're saying, is this Naomi? It, it looks like her, but I don't think it's her. Something's different about her. And Naomi's name means pleasant. And she says to these people, they come and they say, Naomi, is that you? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? She says, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. She says, I went away full and I've returned empty. It's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking scene. I don't know that she's angry at God. I don't sense that. I just think she's stating what she feels in her heart. Because of this decision to disobey God rather than trusting in his provision, and I say that like that's easy to do. I understand this would have been a very difficult thing for them. But they left, they disobeyed God, and now she says, oh, God's hand is heavy on me. He's stripped me bare. Call me bitter. Don't call me pleasant. But that last verse in the first chapter gives to us a tiny flicker of hope into what has been a dark and hopeless story so far. Naomi has returned home where she belongs. She's once again with God's people, and there's now food in the land. And as we turn to chapter 2, we read this in verse 1. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And that statement is sort of made there in verse 1, sort of in, in parentheses, because verse 2 goes right back to the matter of them desperately needing food. And I think the Bible puts that in there in verse 1 to prepare us, because Boaz will soon become the central character in this story, and the author just seems to be dropping a hint, hey, something's coming. Someone's coming who's going to change all of this. And Ruth and Naomi are back in the land where there's food, but they're both widows. They have no men to provide for them. They're desperate. They're hungry. And so Ruth goes out into the fields to look for grain that the harvesters have left behind. Now, I'll insert this quickly. I mentioned this once a long time ago, that in God's law and in his instructions to his people, specifically the farmers, he has already told them that when you harvest your fields, don't harvest the corners. Don't harvest all the way to the edges of the field. Leave that portion for those who are poor and destitute so that they can come along behind the harvesters and they can then go and reap for themselves 
and have food to eat. It's a brilliant plan of God. He's not giving handouts. This is a brilliant design of God. You see, in our society, people want handouts. Just give me something. I don't want to work for it. But God set this up in such a beautiful way that if people wanted food, he provided it for the poor, but they had to go and learn to harvest it, which was providing them with a skill that they could then build upon. It's such a fantastic, I know, boring thing for everybody else, but for me, I think it's wonderful. I'm a nerd. I get it. Verse 3 of chapter 2. So she, that's Ruth, went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now underline or circle or mark those words, she happened, or as it happened. I think the King James says something about, and it hap. There's need for a translation update there, I believe. I haven't used the word hap in my life, but that's what it's saying. As it happened, she happened to come upon the field that belonged to Boaz. Mark that word. I have to wonder if the writer of Ruth had a bit of a smile on his face when he wrote this, knowing that what might appear to us as blind luck was actually the divine sovereignty of God. It was the providence of God leading Ruth to that exact location. God was, in fact, directing Ruth's steps in a way that were not yet clear to her or to us as the reader. He was directing her to that exact location to bring about a series of events more wonderful than Ruth could ever have dreamed possible. See, we've talked about this verse a lot. Proverbs 16, 9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. The Lord determines his steps. That's remarkable to me. I told you I've, I've pondered that verse for years. I'm nowhere near understanding how all that works. But I know it does. God gives us the freedom to come and go, to do what we please. But if we are committed to following him, to living out his purposes in some remarkable way, in the midst of all of our choices, God is nudging us and directing us and guiding our steps. Hey, should we take great hope and comfort in knowing that? That this down here is not all just fate and luck and chance? God is in control. He's guiding us every step of the way. And so the Lord directs Ruth to the field of Boaz, and then as the story goes on, we find that Boaz went to that particular area of that particular field on that particular day at that particular time when Ruth was there. Now, there would have been workers everywhere. There would have been beggars everywhere, scrambling around and working and gleaning and gathering. There would have been people everywhere, but out of all the people there, who is it that Boaz noticed? He noticed Ruth. This powerful, influential, wealthy man not only noticed Ruth, but he showed an interest in her. Chapter 2, verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Now here's an interesting thing. Before Ruth was ever drawn to Boaz, Boaz was drawn to her. He showed kindness to her, even though she was considered a foreigner. She was an outcast. She was considered an undesirable. And what becomes clear after studying the book of Ruth and the larger picture of the Bible as a whole is that Ruth is a picture of us, and Boaz is a picture of Christ. What we see taking place throughout the book of Ruth is a picture of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He loved us even when we were still dead in our sin. He loved us when we were foreigners and alienated from him. He loved us when we were strangers, when we were outcasts, when we were undesirable. He set his love on us long before we were ever aware of him. I can never read the story of Ruth without thinking of the words of the Apostle Paul, we were without God and without hope in the world. That was Ruth, and that's us. And Boaz said to her in verses 8 and 9, essentially, listen, don't go to anybody else's fields. Stay here, Ruth. Stay here in my fields. Glean all you want, and when you're thirsty, come and get something to drink. Now, that's like not a big deal to us, but he was breaking protocol in a big way there, in a huge way. He was lowering himself in a way in that culture that no man of his status would ever dare to do. He was risking his reputation. And his unexpected kindness catches Ruth off guard. In verse 10, it says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And surely, folks, surely that should be our response. As we consider the goodness of God towards us, when we reflect on the grace that he has shown to us, surely we can't help but sing the words, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. And really, that's how we all come to salvation. None of us come to salvation thinking that we're something. You cannot come that way. None of us come to salvation adding to it or accomplishing any part of it. We all come to salvation fully aware that we've done nothing to earn it or to deserve it. We're saved only because he set his affection on us. He took the initiative to redeem us and show us kindness when we could do nothing to redeem ourselves. But Boaz's kindness to Ruth doesn't stop there. He shows her even more grace. In verse 14, he gives her bread to eat. Again, breaking protocol. In verse 15, he commanded his servants to let her gather grain in the best part of his fields, not just the edges. And in verse 16, he told his workers to pull handfuls of grain and drop them on the ground ahead of Ruth on purpose 
so that she can have even more than she ever expected to find. What a day Ruth is having in the presence of Boaz. In verse 18, she takes all of this abundant grain, more than she ever thought she would have, and she takes it home to show Naomi. And when Naomi finds out that Ruth was given this grain in the field of Boaz, her eyes light up. She leans in. Did you say Boaz? Oh, Boaz. He's a good man, Ruth. He's a kind man. And she said, Ruth, do you know who Boaz is? She said, he's, he's one of my family's close relatives. He's a kinsman is the word there. Yours may say in the margin, redeemer. Now that, that term in Hebrew carried far more meaning to them back then than it does to us today. What that term actually means is one who has the right to redeem. That person was called a kinsman redeemer. You see, when God set his laws in place for his people, he included a provision that a close relative who had the means and the desire to do so could legally act on behalf of a relative who had been widowed or who was in danger or in need. Naomi and Ruth are now both widows, by the way, in a culture that was notorious for preying upon widows. Their future did not look promising at all, but now Boaz has entered the picture. And not only is he a kind and generous man, not only is he a prosperous and influential man, but he is also a kinsman redeemer. He has the legal right to take on all of Naomi and Ruth's needs and problems and debts as if they were his own. Who would ever do that for someone else? Oh, a loving kinsman redeemer would. And that's exactly what Boaz gladly chose to do. And again, it's a beautiful picture of Christ. He willingly took upon himself all our sin, and he willingly paid the full price for it in order to redeem us. The song continues, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The Bible says that he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus willingly did all of that for us. But listen, if we are to benefit from this, if we are to benefit from what Jesus has done for us, we must choose to come under his care. We must choose to receive the redemption that he's made available. And that's what Ruth does to Boaz in chapter 3. You can dig into this more for yourselves when you have time. Our time here is always so short on Sunday mornings, but Ruth in chapter 3 does something that seems very strange to us in our culture, and we must be careful as we read this not to inject our own mindset into what's taking place. She comes to Boaz and she lays down at his feet 
and she asks him to cover her with his cloak. Now, there's nothing inappropriate taking place here at all. Boaz clarifies this in chapter 3, verse 11, by saying, Ruth, all the people in the city know that you are a virtuous woman. According to their customs, what's taking place here is Ruth is simply making it known that she wants to come under the covering of, the protection of, the provision of, and the authority of Boaz. She is literally laying herself down at his feet, saying, I'm nothing in your presence. I'm humbling myself, and I'm asking you to cover me with your authority, with your care, with your protection, with your provision. We see the same thing when Elijah walked into the field and threw his cloak over Elisha. It was a symbol of saying, I'm taking you under my covering. I'm going to care for you. And that word garment or cloak there in chapter 3 that she asks Boaz to cover her with is the same word wings that Boaz used earlier in chapter 2 verse 12 when he said to Ruth, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Same word exactly. And Boaz himself is the one who is providing the fulfillment of that very thing in Ruth's life. And by spreading the corner of his cloak, his garment over her, it's a sign that he is accepting the responsibility of taking her under his care and, in fact, to take Ruth as his wife. It's a beautiful picture. And in chapter 4, Boaz follows the exact detailed procedures of the law to assume the full responsibility of redeeming Naomi and Ruth from their desperate situation. And as part of that legal process, he gets Ruth as his bride. Again, it's a wonderful picture that's taking place there. And the text tells us that there was actually another kinsman redeemer who was closer to Naomi than Boaz was. And Boaz is such a man of honor. He loves Ruth so much. In his heart, he would want to do anything to have Ruth as his bride. But he's a man of honor. And he says, listen, I've looked into all the legal paperwork and there's somebody else who's ahead of me in line. And so we must give the offer to him first. Do you understand what remarkable restraint that took for a man of Boaz's power who could have just somehow struck through the law and made this work for himself? Oh, in our culture today, when a young boy sets his eyes on a girl and maybe his parents say to him, listen, you two should slow this down. You should wait. What do they say today? I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to wait. This is what I want. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to do it now. Boaz says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not rushing anything. I'm not breaking the law. I'm not circumventing anything. I'm doing this by the laws that God has put in place. And so this other kinsman redeemer comes forward, and Boaz says, you've got an opportunity to buy the debt of Naomi and assume whatever they have. And he says, great, I'll do it. He says, oh, but one thing, if you do that, you have to marry Ruth, 
and have a child with her so that the line can continue. And he goes, oh, look at the time, got to go. And he didn't want any part of that. And so now he exits the scene and Boaz now legally comes in and assumes all of the responsibility for Naomi and for Ruth. And if Boaz had not fulfilled the obligations of the law to redeem Naomi and Ruth, the law would still be hanging over their head. The matter would still be unsettled. And you see, in order for you and I to be redeemed, God's law had to be dealt with. God's law had to be satisfied. It had to be settled. And Christ is the only one who has the right, who has the means to free us from the demands of the law because he's the only one who perfectly fulfilled the demands of God's holy law. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, that law was hanging over us. We remember the law. We've looked at it. That law hanging over us, a heavy weight, a burden that we're unable to bear, a mark that we're unable to cross. The law was condemning us pointing out our sin, highlighting our sin, showing us the expanse of the gulf between us and a holy God. And the judgment of that law has been hanging over every person who has ever been born. There's only one person who's qualified to deal with all the aspects of the law of God, and that's Christ, because he came and lived a sinless life and fulfilled every aspect of the law on our behalf that we could never do. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law, to bring righteousness to everyone who believes. On and on we could go with those verses. So Boaz redeemed Ruth, and she became his bride, and then God gave them a son named Obed. And that, that would surely be a good enough ending to this book that started out in such a dark place. But God's work of redemption didn't stop there. The book of Ruth ends not with the birth of their son, but with the lineage of their son. Because you see, Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had a son named David, better known to us as King David. But that's not even the best part. Because from the line of King David would come the greatest king of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what God has done here? Out of the tragic sorrow that Naomi experienced, God saved a lost pagan girl named Ruth. He made her the great-grandmother of King David, and he put her in the direct lineage of the Messiah, and she's mentioned in the lineage of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Hey, does that remind you of another lost pagan girl we saw back in Joshua chapter 6? Do you remember a prostitute named Rahab who put her faith in God and chose to follow him? 
Well, here's one little loose end I want to tie up for you today from our studies weeks ago in Joshua 6. Rahab got married, and Rahab had a son. And do you want to know the name of Rahab's son? Boaz. Boaz. Folks, this is a very quick glimpse at this remarkable story. That when we look around in our lives and we see that things seem to all be going wrong, there seems to be darkness and evil everywhere, and even when we've messed up like a limelech, even when we've messed up the plans and we've gotten off course and we've dealt with the consequences of that, God is still there. You've not messed up too bad. You've not strayed too far. The book of Ruth refers to her again and again as Ruth the Moabite, just like it did with Rahab the prostitute, all the way through to the New Testament book of Hebrews, Rahab the prostitute. And you're like, oh man, can we drop that last part? Well, all the way through the book of Ruth, all the way through, she's called Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. And it's to highlight the fact that she was alienated from God. She was lost and without hope, but God, in his loving kindness, reached down and redeemed her and made her his own. And God does not want us to forget where she came from and the extent of his grace and his kindness. Perhaps today, you're aware that, like Ruth, you're alienated from God. You're lost and without hope in your sin. I would invite you Right now, before you leave this place, I would invite you to come to the Redeemer. I would invite you to come to the cross. And as it were, lay yourself at the foot of the cross and ask Christ to cover you with his redemption. <coughs> to pay all of the debt. To settle all of the judgment of the law that is against you. And to make you his own. You can do that right now in the quietness of your heart by just reaching out to him and saying, Lord, I know I'm lost, and I want to be saved. I thank you for already paying the price for my sin, and I invite you into my life right now to be my Savior and my Lord, and he will do that for you. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.